0: suncast is brought to you by sungrow providing clean power for all suncast is also brought to you by trina solar
1: we were still very much a bootstrappy startup even though we were successful and growing fast and you know one thing we did right in retrospect was really embrace pr hey there solar warriors
0: i'm nico johnson and this is suncast Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs who are building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. You know, I love the summer, and somehow the summer just seems to bring fantastic stories to Suncast. This one is no different, my friends. It is part two of Jinnia Medbury's amazing founder and funding story. I hope that you've checked out episode 109. We're jumping into part two, and you can find more great founder stories and solar startup advice and over a 100 episodes more over at mysuncast.com. While you're there, check out the Suncast Tribe, where you can be a part of my inner circle of solar warriors and trusted advisors. Just click on the member button to learn more. But for now, get ready to tune up your skills, solar warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Okay, so I I think I understand what it is you were trying to sell, but so the listener can totally understand, who's the first customer and what do they pay for?
1: So the first customer, the first group of customers, the first year, basically the first 18 months, probably customers basically just rented space in our chambers. So we had equipment that performed reliability that was capable of performing reliability testing and and we didn't really have any programs or anything at the time. So customers just basically outsourced testing that they couldn't do in-house because they didn't have the equipment or their equipment was occupied to us. You're essentially competing with UL and Intertech and CSA at this point. That was a big problem that we saw pretty early on. UL and CSA and Intertech, these are big companies. These are, I don't know, multi-hundred million, maybe billion-dollar companies. They have lots of facilities. And we were this small upstart in Berkeley with three chambers at the time. And we were like, uh, we need to provide more value. We're not going to just compete on a commodity service of just you tell me what to do and I'll do it. We had to come up with something that added a lot more value than just the data itself. This was another concept that really spurred the product qualification program is what do all these manufacturers need? They need to differentiate. They need to get in front of the buying and investing community and they need to get onto their approved vendor lists and they need to demonstrate to them that, you know, they're making good products and they want to sell them. So we had the ability to do that. So, We thought, how can we productize basically this added value? And that was the product qualification program. The value there is really the program, not the testing itself. It's the relationships, it's all the downstream partners, the developer, IPP, finance folks that were willing to listen to us and look at the data and trust the data. And because all the program was identical, it was just one testing program that we performed on every manufacturer. You had some really great apples to apples comparisons now that you just couldn't get anywhere else in the industry. All the raw data, all apples to apples comparisons, all performed by a third party. There's also the challenge of cherry picking. So at that time, a lot of test results, you know, you'd know, you see it, but then you'd say, okay, was this hand soldered by the CTO of the company, or is this really representative of volume commercial production? So one thing we started doing in partnership with a company called Solar Buyer is we would go into the factories in Asia, witness all the production, make sure these were standard commercial samples, nothing special, really audit the bill of materials and test all the different bill of materials. And then we could disqualify one material, but not another material. And you can get pretty granular. And that stuff really was very helpful. Now being at Cypress Creek, I'm a, I'm a big customer of the lab and use that service regularly. That's how I qualify modules. That's amazing. It still works. <laughs>
0: yeah, it, it still works. And this is something that effectively you guys created at PVAL. And Clean Power Finance was your first customer because they wanted to utilize your qualification program to
1: create their approved vendor list. They were our first, I wouldn't say customer, I would say downstream partner. So they, never, they never wrote us a check. Uh, okay. So they were the first Again,
0: another inflection point, they were the first bank to actually say, all right, we want folks to have the PVL stamp, the PQP stamp, product qualification program, so that we can add you to our whitelist or so that we can know that we're getting the right product.
1: And that spurred folks to go through and pay to go through the PQP process. So the idea was if you get a bunch of these downstream partners asking for the same thing, you know, it's a single test program. The Trinas of the world do it once. They don't have to do it for Wells Fargo and then for CPF. They do it one time and then I share the results within the context of confidentiality agreements and NDAs and blah, blah, blah. There's a whole bunch of that stuff. I would help them drive the dialogue with you know initially a few financiers and downstream partners growing to tens, growing to hundreds. Now it's hundreds and now it's not just in the US. There are downstream partners all over the world that are relying on this data and it's really a single test program you got to do these manufacturers have to do. And then it really helps get over the hurdle of a bunch of others. And so many manufacturers are doing it now. So I'm not at the lab anymore. But last I saw, they said nine out of the top 10 manufacturers were participating in the program. The vast majority of that BNEF tier one list is participating in the program. So it's, if you don't have it, it starts to look bad. This is now the module qualification program that DNV
0: GL runs. And the scorecard has evolved out of, et cetera, correct?
1: So the scorecard was an interesting genesis as well. So after we had done this a couple of times, we had data on 10 manufacturers, say 15 manufacturers. I was talking with MJ Xiao from GTM Research, the research side of the house. I said, look, we have all this data. I want to work to add as much value to the manufacturers that participate in this program. You know, they pay us a not small amount of money to do this testing. And, you know, I want to help get them more gigawatts of capacity in the U.S. market and we kind of brainstormed it and came up with the concept of you know if we bundle the data, present it, publish it openly in a very high level kind of summary sort of way, then GTM research can draft a report about it, and we can get it out there so the first one was actually kind of co-written with me and the GTM folks, and they were it was initially a report that they sold, and then I thought you know we're going to get a lot more distribution if it's free, so we just started sponsoring it and getting it out there and then and then with DNV they started just you know, blasting it out there. And I think the last one is now it's like the distribution's like 4,000 reports going out the door when they first come out. It's a pretty big number and it's global and it really highlights the, the good manufacturers. And that's, that was always the goal. Highlight the good manufacturers, highlight the guys that are trying to do a good job to get them more business.
0: Some of the things that you guys worked on at PVIL, which ultimately came, are now uh, core strengths at uh, DMVGL with their modular liability program, were way ahead of their time. How did you and your team decide from a technology perspective what to focus on?
1: So it was really through conversations. You know, I, I spent all my time bouncing around from bank to manufacturer to EPC to developer, trying to understand what the concerns were. I spent a lot of time with the national labs as well, trying to understand kind of what the next gen stuff was. So Solon, a big developer and manufacturer in uh, Germany, was an early discoverer of PID potential induced degradation. So, you know, talking to them, I understood the issue pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, SunPower dealt with the same issue when I was there, but they, they called it polarization. And it, you know, physically is a different mechanism, but the stress voltage on the cells is the same. So the way you test it is fairly straightforward, frankly, and the test is very effective. Going off of some of Solon's early work, talking to Bill Richardson over at Solon and kind of understanding the problem, we developed the test pretty quickly in the matter of a week or whatever, did some testing and validated that this works. In parallel, the IEC, the International Standards Body that makes these standards, started working on PID tests to put into the certification. So that is, I believe, just came out. And this is now five years later. And, you know, standards development is very slow moving, building international consensus, being, you know, dotting every single I and crossing every single T and, you know, they do a great job and they have their role in the market. But for some of these more market driven needs, I mean, commercial labs that can move quickly like PVEL will always be ahead of issues.
0: One of the things that always stood out to me, and I appreciate, Jinya, that you pointed this out and you brought this topic up, is how when I was at Trina, it was around the time that PID became a topic, right? And it was one of those things where not even, as you mentioned, Solon is sort of the discoverer, if you will, or the person that first brought it to your attention and you guys created within a matter of months, a testing protocol that would take many years for the sort of regulatory bodies to come up with in this potential induced degradation or PID what was the process from your perspective internally, whereby companies like Canadian, for example, started to see things that you were creating and bringing to market as potential barriers to entry for competitors? And, and I'll tell you, from, the, from my perspective that we've talked about the, is at Trina, it really felt like the tail wagging the dog for a while because this was not an unknown issue. It was one that every manufacturer was looking to deal with but all of a sudden, Canadian Solar comes out to the market with a PID-free module and essentially used a a real but a, a little conflated scare tactic with the IPPs and, and, and the developers to essentially force every other manufacturer to try to catch up because they had, I won't say secretly, but they had very strategically gone and done all the testing and gotten approvals
1: ahead of the, their peers. Yeah, that's right. I think that's I think that's just how you got to stay ahead. I mean, it was a real issue and Canadian did real work in it. We did a bunch of testing with Canadian. So the physical mechanism that causes PID is a voltage between the frame and the cells. And that voltage creates an electric field over the glass that drives sodium ions and charge either towards the air or towards the cells. And the sodium ions can work their way through defects in the Silicon nitride anti-reflective coating on the front surface of the cell and damage the pn junction and the passivation of the cell so anyways that stress of voltage can cause performance loss basically Uh, that can be solved by putting various blocking layers in the module or by re-engineering the front surface of the cell or by probably a few different methods and so it was a real issue canadian solar worked to develop some fixes at the time you know it's obviously been many years since then so i'm not sure what they're doing now and they they were comfortable enough in the process to call it quote pid free on mm-hmm. the data sheet and we did a bunch of testing to validate that and so they had the third party support and you know so the way the process typically works is or worked when back when i was at PVEL was the wells fargos of the world would get some sort of claim by Canadian, they would call me up and say, Hey, Jenya, they're calling it PID free. And they said, they tested it with you. Is that BS? Or is that real? And like, what are your thoughts? And, you know, I spent the vast majority of my weeks just having that kind of conversation. (laughs) And it was great. I mean, I was, uh, I really enjoyed supporting these transactions getting done. And sometimes it was real. And sometimes there were claims being made that were not real, you know, definitely there were claims being made that were not real sometimes. In that case, Canadian Solar did do all the testing with us, and we did validate that they were PID-free at the time, and it was great. There are so many technologies coming down the pipe right now that this is going to be increasingly way more relevant a year from now than it was a year ago. No doubt about it. And
0: I also you know, want to just put a pin in the fact that it was done in a few months, and it was something that, as a nimble, third-party lab, not you know, one of the standard Intertech or UL or or CSA, right? Like it was really I'm gonna say easier, but it was strategic for you to be able to do this very quickly.
1: Well so the competitive advantage that we always had over the UL, CSA, Intertek's of the world is they do a fantastic job at the commodity certification work. The standards are written, they follow the letter of the standard, they perform the testing, they're very good at it, they're very efficient at it, and they, you know, Grant the certification or not, depending on how you do. What we had was a program with relationships with all of the downstream partners that trusted us, that trusted they'd all been to the lab, they've kicked the tires. I used to give tours to banks through the lab weekly. And they they had a level of trust with the work we were doing, that it wasn't going to be gamed, and, and I was honest with them about everything. You know, over the years, our work had been validated through their experience. It was that program. That was our commercial differentiating advantage over the ULs of the world.
0: So you ran Pvel from 2009 until when was the DNVL?
1: 2010, really. 2009, I was still fundraising. But uh, the DNVGL acquisition closed March 12th of 2014. Okay, so why sell? We were still very much a bootstrappy startup, even though we were successful and growing fast. And you know, one thing we did right in retrospect was really embrace PR. I used to write articles all the time with, you know, Green Tech Media and PV Magazine. I had interviews all the time. Uh, You know, we found some like-minded folks in the industry like uh, Conrad Burke, who was the CEO of Innovalite that got acquired by DuPont. And he was was a head guy at DuPont. And he and I would, uh, you know, DuPont had their Materials Matter or still does have their Materials Matter message, which... I frankly agree with. And so we had similar agendas. We would go out there and push the information out there and and you know the wonderful secret about that is it's all free. You know, you write articles, you get interviewed, you get your name out there, it's free. We tried to we experimented with advertising a few times and found it to be not worth it. It's super expensive to put a ad in a magazine and the value is very marginal. Folks, folks reading it don't even notice it, you know, but the getting an article in there, content marketing works, content marketing works. It's free. It's awesome. I think we had a, we had a probably a reputation of being much larger than we really were. We were probably 15 people in Berkeley that was kind of bootstrapping it. And Andrew, (laughs) our board member, he owns a 1920 something giant wooden yacht, a 90 foot yacht called Wanda that he parks up in the North Bay and Marin somewhere. And uh, we were having a board meeting on his yacht one day, (laughs) which was pretty sweet. I don't know anything about boats, but it was pretty awesome. DNVGL and Black & Veatch and Lidos, like we all kind of ran in the same circles, showed up at the same conferences, and we all knew each other. I mean, we were doing testing and they were, they had to interpret our data to uh, advise banks and buyers. And so we talked all the time. So I was talking with uh, some of the folks from DNV and they hinted, uh, you know, our, company does like to perform acquisitions sometimes. And the guy I was talking to was actually from BEW, which was an old engineering firm that was acquired by DNV as well. And uh, we're on this board meeting on the yacht and I kind of bring this up in passing and kind of say, yeah, but you know, it's not really, it's all It's too early. Let's let's grow our, grow the business a bit more. And, and, you know, Dan put a halt to the Discussion and said, "Wait a second. Wait, repeat that. You got a, some interest in an acquisition, and uh, you want to you want to punt on it. Like, let's go see what that looks like." And so I called DNV back and said, "Okay, well, let's let's see what this looks like. Let's talk more." DNV is a company that specializes in due diligence, so it was not a quick process. At the same time, also we're merging with GL, so it became DNV GL. And DNV is the DNVGL was a 15,000 person global company that could really take PVL to the next level. I felt, you know, give us a bigger platform. They had solar offices all over the world that we can leverage. My son at the time was four and we were, we were looking for schools and, uh, you know, having some additional cash in the bank wouldn't hurt going through that process. And so, and so we went, you know, we, we saw that through, we hired a, iBank called MVP Capital, a guy named Oliver Jansen, who was fantastic. I highly recommend hiring an iBank advisor if you're going to go through a transaction to guide the process and kind of develop some collateral and have some experience in the room. You know, DNV very quickly made us an offer, but it was pretty low. And we we very quickly made a counter offer that was way too high. And then we spent the next 15 months, you know, landing in the middle somewhere. <laughs> I
0: love the story. I appreciate you going into the detail that you did. And especially with, with regard to how long it took. Was there a period during that 15 months that you
1: began to entertain other suitors? Absolutely. So from day one, we began to evaluate other suitors. So, so they kind of kickstarted the process. But then once the process started, it's a real process. And you got to run a real process and, and develop different collateral, not unlike fundraising, that, you know, makes the the value proposition of the business and how the business will, you know, seize the next five years. And we approached a lot of different folks, you know, the most natural fit was getting acquired by an IE, an independent engineering firm, I felt because, you know, they're, they're spending their time advising banks on the longevity and reliability and quality of equipment and, you know, design and performance analysis and stuff. And we were doing stuff that would greatly influence that work and improve it. And so I was really pushing for the DNV acquisition. DNV also has the benefit of owning a bunch of other labs. So they kind of know what it takes to be in the lab business. A lot of the other IEs don't. So it was was a nice fit. I mean, there were definitely other suitors, but that's the one I was kind of most pushing for.
0: At this point as an entrepreneur, how much of the business had you and Rajiv given up?
1: Well, so we had about 21 angel investors that had written checks that ranged from $12,500 up to 200000 We had given equity... To all of our employees and board members and so a little more than half i would say had been given away
0: for you personally still had about 20 25 percent ish of the company
1: in the yeah in that range
0: congratulations that's actually quite successful uh exit <laughs> and was this a without getting into the numbers because obviously you can't disclose what the exit was like was this life changing money fuck you money or was it like I said, <laughs> i'm still gonna have to have a job for the rest of my life money Uh, I'd like to point out
1: that I'm talking to you right now from my Cypress Creek office. So uh, it was was not like go live on the beach money. I mean, but, you know, it was was great. Yes, for me, it was life-altering. Life-altering. That's good.
0: I know. You're listening to this episode because you're tired of doing things the old way and looking for a new approach. And that is precisely why my friends at CPS America, a.k.a. Chint Power Systems, have agreed to help make this fresh content possible for you. See, they believe in the power of change and the importance of trying something before others catch on. They are the U.S. market share leader of three-phase string inverters, pioneering that approach since before it was cool. With over two gigawatts shipped in America, Chint's feature-rich, high-performance inverters and its nimble service team are ahead of the pack, just like you. If you'd like to find out what CPS can do for your CNI and utility business, reach out to me for an intro, nico at mysuncast.com. Or you can reach out to them directly and just let them know you heard it here on Suncast. What lessons do you now share? You're, as an entrepreneur, a- as you mentioned, you get a lot of pitches now. You are an advisor and an investor yourself with some of this life-altering money. What advice from the DMV acquisition and, in fact, from your time with PVEL do you now share with other entrepreneurs and companies you advise?
1: There are a few nuggets of wisdom I've picked up over the years. And I would say, you know, having an engineering background and getting into the commercial space and kind of figuring it out from scratch, I started that process thinking that commercial folks probably know this stuff already. You know, you go to MBA school and you kind of know what a subscription agreement and restricted stock and whatever commercial stuff is, you know how to pitch, you know how to hear a pitch, you get, you get, uh, investor deck and you know what's what and what i found over the years is that nobody really has the right answer and nobody really knows what to do and if you just make it up as you go along you know you're not worse off than the next guy for the most you know most of the time experience plays a much bigger role there but the commercial guys doing business development for the first time there's no right or wrong way to do it and if somebody that's really experienced in business development or that's really schooled in that topic is certain about one way that's right and one way that's wrong. Like that's not, doesn't necessarily mean they're right. Right. So don't undervalue your own intuition when you're going in business development or in fundraising or in going through an exit. Nobody has the right answer. I would say dive in and iterate quickly. So don't over plan and get something, you know, fully perfected. I think 80% is pretty much good enough for everything. And then just iterate Quickly get feedback from external folks as early and often as possible. So don't overplan. You know, there's a. I think this is from that book, from Good to Great. But uh, you know, perfect is the enemy of the good. So that concept really I've experienced to be true. You know, you have to balance that with don't let mediocre stuff out the door. You know, so so have stuff clean, but you don't have to have the concepts fully developed keep high standards for yourself and letting stuff out the door, but move quickly. So the other thing, the other pieces I've, I think, found to be quite important is on the just commercial, on the commercial front when dealing with customers is you gotta be super responsive with customers. So a lot of engineers, especially their intuition is when you get an inquiry and you don't have the right answer, you wait until you have the right answer before you respond. So commercially, I found that to be the wrong approach. You, you got to respond right away within 24 hours, get a response out to every customer, even if the answer or even if the response is we're working on it and we don't know the answer and we'll get back to you soon. If, sitting from the Cypress Creek side of the equation nowadays, when I send inquiries out to technical folks, whether it's vendors or labs or whoever, and I don't hear back for a week, it frustrates the hell out of me because I've got a very busy day job and I've moved on like, you know, I don't want to follow up.
0: Yeah, that's a good point actually, minimize the need or the the an anxiety of of requirement for follow up on the other side. Yeah.
1: And I would say probably the most important lesson I've learned over the years is uh generally check your emotions at the door. You know, there are lots of tense situations that arise in dealing with the solar industry, you know, stuff not going exactly how you want, investors not seeing it your way or you know, potential acquirers not moving fast enough. Check your emotions at the door and be very cool, calm, and collected. Uh, it's a small industry. Have integrity. Keep your cool, but don't get pushed around either. I guess I've had lots of customers over the years, and there have been some occasions where I've had some pretty, you know, emotional. I would say personal, personal interactions where you know I can respond and say, you know, f you, get the hell out of here. But that's not checking your emotions at the door. You know, these people you will bump into again. Treat everyone with respect. And if somebody doesn't have the maturity to be an adult and check their emotions at the door, you know, that's okay. Don't reflect what they're shooting at you. Just, you know, apologize and see what's wrong and try to calm, diffuse the situation. So,
0: as you mentioned, you're now at CCR, Cypress Creek Renewables, that's right. head of technology. That's a large swath that you have to cover. How do you decide now what you spend your time on on a day-to-day basis? And how are you helping Cypress improve?
1: Yeah. So, Cypress Creek... We develop, build, own, operate solar projects. So it's a big company with probably you know, 600 or so employees, very successful installing a whole lot of projects and a whole lot of solar. There's a lot that can be improved in the industry still and at Cypress still about just technology. So what I focus on being a one human with you know, 24 hours in a day is kind of triangulating A, what has the highest returns for a project, with B, what's kind of the lowest hanging fruit, and C, what do I personally know best and know how to solve? So kind of triangulating those three things sets my agenda for the direction of technology that I focus on. Our construction manager will be the first to tell you that I'm no expert in construction, but I am on the equipment side of things. And I know a lot of the players on the equipment side of things. So I can And on the testing side of things, right, so I can, we we test a lot of, we test a lot of stuff, we do it, we look at a lot of third-party testing, we validate a lot of claims that we debunk often, and, or, you know, or validate sometimes, and kind of put our uh, plan together as how we move forward over the next 24 months plus.
0: Well, I am going to ask a little bit about some of the things that you are testing and validating vis-a-vis a game I call Hot or Hype. What I do is I name a specific topic. You'll spend 30 to 60 seconds on whether or not you think it's hot or hype or why. And it's a little bit of a litmus test for the bleeding edge of technology, if you will, what's disruptive, et cetera. We'll start with uh, the common topic of energy storage. But in particular, I want to know around what you, your thoughts around DG energy storage versus utility energy storage and whether this is hot or total hype.
1: I think any energy storage is generally hot. Energy storage is a hell of a lot more complicated than cents per kilowatt hour, as you probably know. So finding the right niche and the right value proposition is super key. The value proposition for large grid connected utility scale storage is very different than CNI building connected energy storage, which is probably mostly around like peak shaving, time of use management sort of thing, moving around the energy that you're using. On the grid, that's less valuable because you don't have a meter in front of you. And so the value proposition for large utility scale energy storage is just making solar look like baseload. And is that the future? I think absolutely. There is no doubt that energy storage plus solar, solar plus storage is the future of probably all solar. But, you know, the price is coming down quickly. Where does the price need to be for storage to look like baseload? For PV storage to look like baseload? I don't know the magic number. It probably, well, it definitely varies by region in the US, but you know, at 200 bucks a kilowatt hour at the system level installed, that probably does it in a lot of locations. We're not there yet. The price is coming down fast. And honestly, the technology side of the industry is still figuring it out. They don't know exactly how to integrate all this stuff and have all the, where to put the brains and make sure the brains all talk to each other and talk in the same language. And like, there's gonna be lots of, underperforming and unsuccessful systems out there as we learn as an industry. Because this stuff's pretty complicated and it's got the controls side of it is a lot more complicated than solar. Hot or hype, electric
0: vehicle grid integration. I
1: would say in the long term, it's hot. In the near term, it's probably hype. So as more fleet operators move to EVs, EV fleets, I think there will be a huge role in vehicle to grid for like demand response once you have giant fleets charging and uh, the utility or the ISO can send out DR signals and then pay for them, these fleet operators can monetize DR when charging. I don't think there's going to be a lot of feeding back into the grid. I think it will be used for DR though. So not a lot of
0: feeding back into the grid, i.e. your average homeowner, Joe homeowner is not likely to participate in the vehicle to grid system.
1: I don't think so. Working the battery, working the very expensive battery in your vehicle for the nominal cents per kilowatt hours you're going to get feeding back in is just not going to be worth it.
0: All right. So let's move to a logical then next, I think, topic for discussion. Hot or hype?
1: Blockchain for energy transactions. So hot for sure. I think blockchain... You know, it's got a long roadmap and when I say hot, I think it's not gonna be a huge hockey stick in the next twelve months, but it's gonna be a a slow validating concept, you know, lots of validation needed. These are very like stodgy, slow moving industries we're trying to disrupt here. But if we want a truly transactive grid where transactions can be made out in the grid somewhere, the only way to accomplish that is through a blockchain system where you have lots of nodes out there, computers are cheap. My thermostat probably can run a simple program on it that can execute a transaction with whoever. So they need to be, the transactions need to be executed out in the nodes, out in the systems. So the central hub and spoke where all the transactions are tracked and executed in a central location and then commands are sent out will never be fast enough, or at least not in a cost-effective way be fast enough to go out to the residential level yeah for that you pretty much need blockchain and there's a bunch of great work being done in that space with grid singularity and the energy web foundation and new startup thomas folker's running called leap yeah there's a lot of great work being done in that but there's there's a lot of development that needs to happen but i feel strongly that that'll be part of the future
0: Fantastic. That might be the best answer I've ever heard on this topic. And I'll save one that I know is uh, particularly pertinent to Cyprus here for the last. And by Cypress, I mean for all utility developers everywhere. Hotter Hype Bifacial Solar Modules.
1: Oh, that's I think the hottest. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Help me understand the timing here. As, as as you pointed to with blockchain, is bifacial something where every project is going to migrate to being hundred percent bifacial in the next twelve months? Is this like still three years out? Where where are we at on bifacials?
1: So, like the solar industry, development has occurred over the last couple of, or over the last decade. A lot of decisions are going to be. Accelerated by policy or driven by policy there is currently an exclusion request in the 201 import tariff for bifacial modules if that gets the thumbs up if, if bifacial modules get, get a 201 exclusion for the US only of course the whole industry utility scale goes bifacial overnight you know in a matter of four weeks probably everything's bifacial okay a- assuming that doesn't happen and we're operating on fundamentals and bifacials competing with the same import tariff structure bifacial is the single greatest energy yield step function since just the introduction of trackers, right? So introduction of trackers, you get 20, 25% for doing pretty minimal technology risk if you do it right. Okay. It's not, not totally trivial. There's lots of, you know, wind studies and, and things like that, that need to be done. And next tracker has a big R and D team working on all that stuff, right? Not, it's not for no reason. But for minimal technology risk, if done right, you get 20% more yield. Bifacial modules for minimal technology risk with, I would say, a lighter lift than moving from fixed to tracking, you get 10% more yield. You know, maybe call it 8%, 12%, depending on the region. There's a lots of devils in the details with bifacial, but generally, bifacial will improve the NPV economics of any solar project, I think, if... The manufacturers, there are some manufacturers that are currently trying to charge too much for it. The fundamental premium should probably be in the, you know, two cent range. But if we get there and kind of this, the, the EPC construction side of things get figured out, you know, maybe there's another two cent premium there, call it whatever. I think the, the NPV economics will always favor bifacial. There needs to be a lot of additional work done on how to effectively perform the energy modeling. And so Cyprus is doing some work on that front. If we can get there without being overly conservative.
0: Feels like right now everybody is stuck in the not just wait and see, but like pilot program phase. And I wonder how long this pilot program stage is going to go. Well, one thing that was really interesting for me in the, in July, I went out and looked at the bifacial test facility that Soltec has, and the REC guy was there. Kind of, I want to say bragging, but like making the claim that REC, at least for the module they have in sort of beta release, is at the same price as monofacial, right? So great, yeah. So I would suggest that the fundamental premium is closer to zero than two cents. And especially as the utility developers like Cypress move into a world where they won't consider monofacial for utility projects, I think we're going to see no premium at all. So that that will certainly boost your uh, returns.
1: That's fantastic. I love that. That's the new goal.
0: What important lessons or key takeaways do you have or do you, or you carry with you from the most important mentors in your life?
1: Like we talked about earlier, Pvel was fortunate enough to have a pretty high power board And I went into initial board meetings, kind of not really knowing how to run a board meeting, coming up with basically pitching folks. Hey, here's why we're doing well. Great, right? Rah, rah. So Rob Koch, super smart guy. learned a lot from him over the years. He took me aside and he said, hey, you have a high power board. Use them. You know, they're advisors. They're here to advise you. They're here for you. Utilize them. Ask them for stuff, whatever it is. Don't, you know, we're sold. We're all sitting around the table. We're here you don't need to sell us, like use your board. So that was very sage advice from a smart guy who I would say was a big mentor of mine and still is. The first board meeting uh, we ever had, I used to have a couple hour board meeting in the office and then we'd all go to a local restaurant in Berkeley and get a private room in the back and all go, you know, keep talking over dinner. And the very first board meeting, I uh, planned everything perfect, was super nervous, you know, had everything going. We finished the meeting in the office and we're walking into the restaurant and the host in the restaurant says, Oh, sorry, we just gave that room to someone else. Sorry. There was a mix up in the reservation, I guess, but we've got this other table for you out here in this noisy area where everyone's screaming and whatever. And I was like, Oh shoot. Well, sorry guys. We're just going to sit out here. And Dan took me by the shoulders and shook me and looked me in the eyes. And he said, no is just a request for more information. And <laughs> so we went back to the guy and said, whatever, we worked it out. And, you know, they reset the other table and we went. Into the.
0: No, it was just a request for more information. That's beautiful. Said from a true sales guy to Dan Sugar is a, he is. A- it's, a, it's a state of mind more than anything. <laughs> is there any particular, I'll say dead end road that you encountered either p or or just throughout your career thus far, you might consider it a failure, but maybe it was a pivot that you feel like has really influenced or affected your career and given you new direction?
1: I would say the the failures that most influenced my life and my thought process is you know, in twenty thirteen for whatever reason we were going months without signing any new contracts, and you know cash in the bank was dwindling, and uh I had i don't know ten to fifteen employees, and you know we had a lot of technicians or a lot of those employees were technicians, and you know they're not getting paid super well anyways they have Families, you know, were covering their health benefits, and like I just could not sleep at night. The with there's one guy specifically, I was like just dreading coming in one day and saying, Sorry, guys, everything's dead, go look for a new job. That was a very stressful time with a lot of lost sleep. I guess I learned that you just treat your employees as humans, you know, view them as humans. That's what really got me continuing to move forward. And so one of the ways I addressed our cash crunch at the time was, you know, I started making payrolls out of, uh, you know, my cousin loaned me 25 grand and, you know, tap a line of credit. And I called up a lot of the pending quotes we had out there, pending proposals we had out there. And I, you know, the ones that are more friendly, the, where I know the guys personally, and I said, Hey, we're, uh, Looking at doing some strategic stuff, and I need some cash in the door ASAP. And like, if you can sign like today, I'll give you just fifteen percent off. Just help me out. And they said, okay, you know, and you, if, when you build those relationships and you have that trust over the years, you know, you can have these kind of off-the-record conversations, and uh, it worked. You know, business picked up again, and the bank got refilled, and everybody stayed employed, and I started to sleep again.
0: I know that you're an avid reader. Is there anything in particular from uh your library that you feel like is seminal reading or that you recommend and give to others that you're advising?
1: I wouldn't say there's any seminal reading, you know, I'm currently reading a book called Saving Capitalism written by Robert Reich and I just love that guy. The first half of the book's pretty damn depressing because it outlines all what's not working in today's America. Well, not even today's, even pre-Trump era. But you know, good to great is a good book. I think, uh, you know, I've read a lot of these business books that I, I have found none of them to be transformational in how I think about things, but a lot of them just incrementally honing your intuition and in how you think about things. Uh, my favorite novel is a book called Perfume. Who's that by? And Patrick Susskind. It's a great novel. I mean, it has absolutely nothing to do That's with fine. solar. Or no, it doesn't, or have, to have, it doesn't have to do
0: with solar at all. That's this is about span, expanding your, it's your a mind. awesome, awesome novel. Love it. Love it. I'll, I've, I mean, I've recommended Ready Player One all the time, right? So it's, it definitely we don't have to be in the realm of, of solar here. This is mostly the folks that listen to Suncast really get into and are avid readers. So that's good. Jinja, I could ask you a million more questions, but we're going to have to wrap this up. Where can people find you? How can they get in touch if they wanted to reach out?
1: Uh so LinkedIn's probably the easiest I'm Genya is you know I've been fortunate enough that there aren't so many Jenya's in the solar industry, so yeah. last name is pretty optional.
0: Yeah, Jenya, it's it's genya with a J. Yeah. That's
1: right, Kenya with a J. And Jenya, as we wrap here,
0: let's end as we usually do with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market
1: that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? Uh so I think there are a few things. First of all, we're installing utility-scale plants at sub $1 already installed costs, and there are still identified ways to get this down. So I think over the next coming years, there's going to be a lot of technology introduced into solar. There is into solar plants that historically have had you know not so much technology introduced in there. There are ways, technology pathways to, to get this number down. And in parallel... You know, we talked about the 25 year warranty we had in the past. So 25 years is not what any plants are financed on anymore. So 35 years is typical and we're pushing to 40. Traditional thermal generating plants are financed on 70 years useful life. There is absolutely no reason why 25 years is is the right number. I think if you do your testing, if you pick your bill of materials, if you do your QA, QC on the factory floor, if you design it right, if you do all the steps. There's no reason why you can't have a 50 plus year operating solar plant. And I think that's the direction the industry is going in. I love it. 50 year plus
0: operating assets. It is indeed lofty for today's acquisition or procurement and building standards for PV. But hey, as you pointed out, the warranty itself was a fabrication of marketing for 25 years. So right. why not build our industry like the rest of the traditional operating assets out there and target 70, not just 50. So I appreciate the insight there, Virginia. Super appreciate the time, the extra effort. And of course we will continue to be in communication all right solar warriors i know that you are loving this because you're giving me lots of feedback on linkedin and twitter so stoked to have the type of engagement that we're getting from listeners every single day thank you for reaching out thank you for showing up again thank you for wanting to hear more and thank you to Jenya. For showing up on this interview. Man, I learned a ton. Hope that you've learned a lot as well. And I know you're thinking, oh, what am I going to do now? This is over, but I want so much more. Don't be sad that it's over. You can just head on over to mysuncast.com, join the Solar Tribe, get on the mailing list, and you can keep hanging out with us. I'm going to open up our Slack community to the tribe members. We have a fantastic WhatsApp community for those of you in Latin America and pretty soon I'm going to open up that Facebook group we talked about. You know, You are still listening to this, and that means that I think you really do probably value the work that we're bringing to life. So what I'm talking about is our Suncast Solar Tribe. You can consider joining and helping support the podcast financially, whether this is your first episode or 101st episode listening. I value you being here. Would you check out mysuncast.com forward slash member? And of course, you can also join hundreds of other solar warriors. Subscribe to the email list while you're there. Well, if you're still hanging out, why don't you check out the next episode of SunCast. Here is a little tidbit.
1: And then lo and behold, as I was dragged into this, it turns out the big opportunity that I saw was actually bringing IT into the energy industry. So I get to do it again.
0: That was Tom Tanzi from SunSpec Alliance. And on Thursday, we're going to really dig into what is SunSpec and how is it shaping the future of integration of PV and storage with the grid what Tom calls grid I look forward to formally welcoming you into the tribe, my friend. Thanks again for showing up. It's half the battle.